This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives. For the glory of your great name. Amen. Now, we're uh, looking at this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It'd be great if you had that open in front of you right now. So that's on page, uh, just finding it, page 930. Um, it's a, it's a tricky passage, so it's great if you actually have the text in front of you there. Um, and just for those who've not been here the last few weeks, uh, I haven't randomly selected a very strange passage from the middle of one of Paul's letters. We've been going through Paul's letters, and uh, it's the way to do it, really, is because you don't avoid uh, passages that are uh, tricky and difficult. In the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been looking at what Paul has to say about sex, singleness and marriage. You might like to uh, catch up on some of that by looking at the recordings that are on the website, which you can actually have on your podcast. Um, but today we, we come to this issue, this discussion of singleness and marriage that Paul puts before us and uh, delve right in. So I remember, I don't know if uh, you remember doing this, but uh, this there's something about those days when you're at school and you're homesick that stick in your mind. I do remember being homesick when the, the shuttle, the, the shuttle Challenger, um, the Columbia shuttle uh, disintegrated on the screen before me and I was kind of alone at home. That was uh, quite a moment. And I do remember being homesick from high school sometime in the 1980s and flicking on the daytime soaps. One of them the most famous and cheesiest of them all, had an iconic opening. It had an hourglass, and over this uh, hourglass, as it kind of, the tr sand trickled away, uh, it had a, a sort of uh, pompous voice saying, like sands through an hourglass. Does anyone know? Well, that says more about you than... So are the days of... Our lives, okay? So a group of people at the front have seen this. So are the days of our lives. The days of our lives pass one by one like a trickle of sand until they run out and we are gone. We do not know how many we have, but we do know that they will run out and the sand is flowing only one way. And if this is what time is like, like a great hourglass with sand running out, then how should we live? How shouldn't you and I think of our lives? How should we live them? For many people in our city and in the city of Corinth in the first century, the answer was this. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is... To quote Robin Williams from Dead Poets Society, suck the marrow out of life, carpe diem, seize the day, because our grip on the world is so transitory, so ephemeral. The time is short, too short to be messing around in. It'll soon be, soon pass and we'll be filled with regrets about what we didn't do if we don't act now. now this is the thinking behind the spirit of our age, which I've been calling, as we've been going through these pa the passages from 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, I've been calling planet porn. Grab pleasure while you can, for the clock is ticking, your looks are fading, and who knows what tumour is growing in your body even now. But on planet porn, 
things aren't always just about pleasure and sex, right? Planet porn has its romantic side as well. One of the most common scripts in our, in our culture is, you have to find your significant other, your soulmate, to make your time on this earth worthwhile. And if you're celebrity with a, maybe a minor celebrity with a bit of time on your hands, you could be the subject of a TV show in which you get to choose 20, uh, from 20 uh, members of the opposite sex and then after uh, several weeks of conning the public, don't choose any, as it turns out. It's not a new idea. In the 1600s, the poet Robert Herrick wrote a poem called To the Virgins, to make much of time. You may have heard it. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still a-flying. And this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. That age is best which is the first when youth and blood are warmer. But being spent, the worst and worst times will succeed the former. You're hot-blooded when you're younger, so get on with it, he says. Then be not coy, but use your time, and while ye may, go marry. For having lost but once your prime, you may forever tarry. If you don't marry now, you'll be on the shelf, is basically what he's saying. A life is wasted if you don't find that significant other, if you don't marry them. And for us, it mightn't be in our day and age, it might be marriage that does it, but we do think that romantic love will give us the richness of experience and the identity that we seek. We put a lot of stock in having that special relationship that will make the experience of time slipping through our fingers bearable and give us fulfillment, identity, meaning and purpose. Now I know as a pastor, that being single when you want to be married or being married when you think you've married the wrong person is an agony for many, many people. But for Christians, time is different. Something has changed for Christians, which makes thinking about time not a question of how much time I have left, like sand trickling through an hourglass so the days of our lives, but what kind of times we are living in. The Greeks used to to talk about chronos and kairos, and they're both words we could translate time, but they mean very different things. Chronos is the time on your watch that hopefully, well, congratulations to you that you adjusted perfectly to get here this morning. It's the time in the hourglass. Kairos is the quality or kind of time that we're living in, the age we're living in. We could talk about us living in the age of the smartphone. That would be the kairos of the smartphone or whatever we might like, like to say. Paul says to the Corinthian Christians and to us, You are, if you're in Christ, now living in a different age, a different kairos. And that changes everything about your approach to life, about whether it's a good idea to get married, just to take one example. You can see this in verse 26, when he talks about the impending crisis. There's an impending crisis. And in verse 29, when he talks about the appointed time, the word there is kairos, the appointed kairos has grown short has grown near. And in verse 31, when he says, the present form of this world is passing away. What does he mean? Well, if you've picked him up all through his letter, you'll know that he means that it has to do with Jesus. 
Jesus, the Son of God, has come as a man to earth, has died on the cross for the sins of people, human beings, men and women, and risen now from the dead, meaning that a new age has dawned. A new age has begun. It meant that the old age in which sin and death had seemed to triumph was now finished and the new age of the kingdom of God had arrived. You could now pass into the age of the Spirit of God by becoming a Christian because this would mean that the old age lost its grip on you. And the beginning of the new age means looking forward to the time when Jesus will return and everything will be as it is made to be in the age of Jesus in the time, the kairos of Jesus, death has been destroyed and sin no longer condemns. And that means in the age of Jesus, you and I have a new identity. We are someone particular. We have a new identity because we are those for whom Jesus died. We have a new purpose and we have a new meaning. Remember in chapter 6 that Paul said to his the church gathered there. He said, you used to be all sorts of things. You were adulterers and you were thieves and you were drunkards and swindlers and revelers. And, you know, you were all of those things. You could, you could rightly be said of you that you were these things, but that is what some of you used to be. You are now someone different from that. You are not defined by those things. You are now a new person. You've been bought at a price not cash, down at the slave market or the brothel. You've been bought at the price of Jesus' own body who died for you and you are now someone else. You are his. You belong to him and because of him you can know that you are significant and loved and you have a purpose. But now, we live at a crisis point in history Oh, you can imagine what it's like to live in a crisis. My grandfather told me about uh, the Second World War, what it was like to live in the eastern suburbs when the Japanese sent a few shells over and all of a sudden Bellevue Hill property prices went down very suddenly. And the Japanese also sent some subs into Sydney Harbour and men were going off to war and there was rationing introduced and conscription. And he told me too about the Depression and what it was like to live in the time of economic crisis in this country. And in a time of crisis, the normal ways of things changes. There's a sense of urgency and purpose to the way people live when they're aware of a crisis. For 2,000 years, Christians have thought of themselves, have understood themselves to be living in a time of crisis. Because we know that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, Jesus' kairos, his time has come. And that there is a victory over sin and evil and death. And we know that it is for sure. But that the defeat of things is not complete yet. We live in two overlapping ages. There's a tension between them. The old way of things has not yet been defeated. Its time is finishing. But it is not yet completely passed, and there's this tension between them. And so Paul is saying to the people who've gathered in that church all those years ago, he's saying, this is how to live when you're part of the new kingdom, but when the old kingdom is still there. This is how to live in the time of Jesus and not in the time, the kairos of planet porn. And what does he say to them? He says, 
You have to have your focus on the Lord. Not because other things don't matter, but because if you have your eye on the Lord first, then everything else will be in its true perspective. Have your eye on the Lord above all things. That's what he wants the Christians to do. That's what he wants us to do, to have our eye on the Lord, to seek to please him above all things. I remember vividly realizing this when I was about 17. and I, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I had a, at that moment a profound sense that I now had an identity and a purpose in Jesus Christ that was deeper than anything I could make for myself. I can't tell you how liberating, how extraordinary that is. I remember the wave of peace that came upon me, even as a 17-year-old. I could now see that what really mattered in the world was pleasing the Lord and that I didn't have to chase after other things that wouldn't give me what I wanted anyway. And I realized that I was profoundly and utterly loved. And that's the Christian thing. That's the Christian mentality. We aren't running around trying to cram as much passion as we can into a short space of time because life is a poor player that struts and frets its hour upon the stage, a brief candle, to quote the bard. In Jesus' time, we are urgent, but urgent for another reason. We are trying to cling to him and to avoid being sucked into the vortex of planet porn with its desperation to cram as much life as it can into life. Or to put it in the way the young people do these days, FOMO, or the fear of missing out, that governs our time. But what Paul says to us here is really, look, I haven't got a set of rules I haven't got a kind of mapped out blueprint for how this is going to work for you. I've got some advice, but you're going to have to practice discernment. You're going to have to use your own wisdom when it comes to how you are going to live in Jesus' time, knowing who you are, knowing what the times are like, and knowing what the environment around you is like. And that's why he starts this intriguing section by saying, look, I'm giving my own, verse 25, I'm giving my own opinion here, not something that Jesus taught explicitly. I'm trying to work out the principles he taught and apply them to you. And he's addressing the question that had arisen amongst the Corinthians about whether you should get married given the state of the times. You know, there were people there who had obviously lined up marriage partners and they were wondering, should we actually go ahead and get married? And there are people who've kind of made promises and there are people who are married who are saying perhaps we should just leave each other and perhaps this whole business of being married is sort of disgusting. We should leave and just be single people and they're wondering if they should both leave and, and go through with weddings that have been planned. And Paul's advice to them is this. It's good to remain as you are. Don't leave your marriage, but why take on the responsibility of marriage if you don't have to? Now notice, Paul is pro-marriage, but he's not that pro-marriage. That's interesting, isn't it? He's not as pro-marriage as some people who campaign for marriage in his name. He's quite practical about it. Getting married, he says, is a big responsibility. And as he says in verses 32 to 35, it's right for you to be concerned if you're married about how to please your partner when you're married. When you're married, you've got the concern of looking after this other person, of trying to please them. 
And if you're single, you don't have that responsibility, that burden. It means you are more free to focus on pleasing the Lord Jesus. And it's for practical reasons that he says to them, look, you have to make a call in your situation. It's not a bad thing to marry, he says. Go ahead and marry, that's fine. Marry if you think it's best to do so. Only notice what he says in verse 39. He gives one kind of direction. He's talking to widows there and he says, marry in the Lord, which means that if you are free to choose a marriage partner, choose someone who is in the Lord, someone who shares your faith. That is a wise choice, someone who's also a Christian. But if you don't need to, he says, then why not choose the single life? There's real advantages to it because of the times we're in. There's a crisis on. Now, this gospel pragmatism is really at odds with our romantic views about marriage and its importance to our personal fulfillment. And I have to say, Christians have sometimes added to this idealization of marriage as the summit of human existence. And perhaps we at St. Mark's are a little bit to blame for having such a nice building that people want to get married in. Well, we mightn't say marriage these days as much as finding your soulmate and being with them for life. We really do believe that that's crucial to a fulfilled human existence. We've deeply internalised, you and me, the idea that if we aren't in a successful, fulfilling, romantic relationship, then we aren't completed human beings. We're not fulfilled. And if we see someone else who is single, then clearly they are not a fulfilled and complete human being. It's how we tell so many of our stories, isn't it? We expect this relationship with our soulmate, so-called, to be emotionally and sexually fulfilling of us. And when we don't have it, either because we're single or widowed or in a marriage that isn't working, it can be crippling. We feel like we are a failure. But Paul says, look, marriage is great. It's a gift from God, after all. God made it. And it's a picture of his own great love for his people. And if you're married, you get to display what God is like to other people, to show what it is to die for someone, to lay down your life for your partner, just as Christ lays down his life for us. But it's a temporary state. It's not an eternal one. What is eternal is pleasing the Lord. And that's why he writes these strange words in verse 29 verse to 31. Have a look at them. I mean, they're a piece of poetry, but they're strange, aren't they? And they reflect Jesus when he says, you know, if you, you need to hate your brother and your mother and your family if you're going to follow me. I mean, brothers and sisters, he says, the appointed time has grown short from now on. Let even those who have wives be as those as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no possessions, and those who deal with the world as if they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Is he saying to husbands here, look, mate, you don't have to go home. Just ignore her. Move out. Don't, Don't need to attend to your marriage at all. In fact, you know, just... Pretend that you don't have a wife. That's what I'd advise. Is he saying that? Is he saying that we should not mourn for the dead or that we should stop enjoying life or not have any possessions at all? We need to pay close attention to Paul because he's telling us what it's like to live in the age of Jesus. 
in Jesus' kairos, Jesus' time. Clearly, Paul thinks it's good for married people to stay together in the fullest possible sense, which is why we're running our marriage enrichment course. He said that already. Last week, he said, if you're married, stay married and work on your marriage. But the key is this. The present form of this world is passing away. All the structures and patterns and institutions of this world are temporary. They matter, but they aren't ultimate. They will crumble. They aren't for clinging to. And that includes even something as good as marriages. And funnily enough, you know, it will probably lead to a happier marriage if you don't consider your marriage the ultimate thing in your life. It's an awful pressure to put on a relationship to make it the ultimate source of meaning, to make it the thing that must give you the fulfilment that you seek and the identity that you want. It will only disappoint you, and more's the point, you will be a disappointment to your spouse because it turns out you're not God either. Or if you're single, believing that marriage isn't the ultimate thing will lead to a happy, happier experience of singleness. Not that it's wrong to want to be married. But only Jesus can be our fulfillment and our salvation. No marriage partner can be that for you. And what a liberation for your singleness that will be. It gives us a new purpose to please the Lord. And what a liberation for your marriage that will be. It doesn't have to be divine for you. It doesn't have to be God for you. And living in the age of Jesus changes other things as well. If you're mourning or rejoicing, it's not wrong to mourn or rejoice. But if you live in Jesus, you know that mourning or rejoicing are what happens to us in this passing world. We know that our mourning is not the ultimate. Our, our times of grief are not without comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We know not to take our happiness as ultimate in the things that are around us, because we know that this present world is passing away. It is only temporary. And it changes how we own things too. We don't possess our things, says Paul. Not really. We have this fiction of legal attachment to things, don't we? We love to, to find our identity, our self, in the things we own and pretend that we have this deep, personal, ontological connection to stuff. But our stuff outlasts us. It's given to our family to squander. They say wherever there is a will, there is a family. We can't keep things once we are gone. And the kingdom of Jesus is coming. So we should live with our stuff as if this is the case. It gives us an incredible lightness of being. To what time is it? If you haven't come to that place yet, if you haven't entered into the time of Jesus yet, then why not give yourself to him today and know his peace, know that lightness. Find in him who you really are, in him and the real love of the one who died for you. But if you're already living in that new time, Paul wants you to know that when you follow Jesus and his spirit lives in you, that you now live in a different era. You've come to a place where things are different in every respect. 
you're in a new age. And that means having a totally different outlook on the essential things of life, like getting married or not, or the things we own in this world. And I want to ask, do you have that perspective? Do you ask, first and foremost, what will please the Lord in my life? Do you make decisions about yourself that really reflect the truth that this present form of the world, good though many of the things of it are, is passing away? If we understand the time of Jesus, we'll understand that our identity and our purpose is caught up with him. We are who we are, not because we are married or single or partnered or widowed or divorced or separated, but because he was the one who died for us. Remember, he bought us at the price of his own body and we belong to him. That's who we really are. And so we don't need marriage to make us fulfilled and complete human beings. We already have that in Jesus. We don't need possessions or experiences or achievements to give our life meaning and purpose. And these things are not bad and they're not, not wrong to strive for, to strive for, but we have meaning and purpose and significance and love already in Jesus. And knowing this frees us to make very different life decisions. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.